Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all here on a long weekend and also a beautiful day. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the Ascension narrative, as, uh, as, Liz and both, as both Liz and Nick have mentioned, um, in light of Ascension Day coming up this Thursday. So it is a little bit preemptive. Usually you talk about Ascension Day the Sunday after, but I want us to be thinking about Ascension Day ahead of time so that maybe on Thursday you'll remember some of these things, you'll think of some of these things, and maybe you might even find a way to actually celebrate Ascension Day, because it's often something that we actually forget about in the Christian narrative. We read in the, chapter, the first few chapters of Acts that 50 days after Easter was Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, of course, meant something different in Jewish history, but 50 days after Easter, the Spirit fell on the disciples, right? We have this wonderful story in the second chapter of Acts of the Spirit falling on the disciples. There's tongues of fire, people are drawn to Jesus, and it's this lovely story that we're all fairly familiar with. But something else happened before that, something incredibly significant, something that's actually a really big deal. Jesus' death was a big deal, changed everything. Jesus' resurrection was a big deal, changed everything. But there's one more event that we often forget about, one that if it didn't happen, then the other two events really would have been for nothing. Because 40 days after Easter, 40 days after Easter, 10 days before the Spirit was dispersed to the disciples, something significant happened. Jesus ascended, and it changed everything about how his disciples were meant to live. So we're going to look at that narrative now in the first chapter of Acts. So if you've got a Bible with you, or if you want to grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you, or if you just want to stare at the screen, the words will be up there as well. We're looking at Acts chapter 1, and we're going to go from verse 1 down to verse 11. Okay, I'll just give you a second there if you're turning in the Bible, in your Bible. Acts comes after the Gospel of John, just in case you didn't know. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Y'all good? Cool. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend a little bit of time just processing through some of the implications of these verses that we've just read, and then we'll see how they sort of land, give a few implications or applications for them in our day-to-day living. So essentially what we're doing is we're looking at the riches that can be found in this text, and then we're going to try to translate those riches into our own day-to-day living, okay? Just a bit of a background then. So the book of Acts... Because this is the first chapter of Acts, we kind of need to know where this has come from. The book of Acts has been written by Luke. Now, Luke was the same author of the Gospel of Luke, okay? That was his first book. Acts is his second book, okay? So whenever you think of these two books, think of them in tandem with each other, okay? Because Acts actually continues where the book of Luke ends off, all right? In that book, as Luke mentions here in verse 1, he's, he talked about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Okay? Implication there is that the work is not yet done. All right? I, in that book, I talked about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What Jesus started to do, verse 2, until the day he was taken up to heaven. <laughs> Wait, What? Already in verse 2, already in verse 2 in this book, we are told that Jesus is gone. Okay, if you've just finished reading the Gospel of Luke, you'll think that Jesus is still here, right? He's resurrected, he's showing up impromptu visits with his disciples, he's walking through doors, it's all hunky-dory. And now, start of Act, start of act 2, start of Acts, Act 2, Book 2, by verse 2 already we're being told that Jesus is gone. He's not here anymore. In the first breath of this book, Luke is already alerting us to this new reality. How did this happen? Because this whole book now is going to be built on the reality that Jesus isn't here. He's not here anymore. Why? We just got him back. Let's look at verse 3. Jesus suffered... So he's giving us a bit of an outline here, right? Jesus suffered, and then he proved that he was alive by making random appearances and popping up here and there, kind of like, where's Waldo? For 40 days, right? Explaining the kingdom of God. 40 days. That's it. He only stuck around for 40 days. That's not very long, but 40 days, hold on. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard the number 40 before? You're allowed to talk, it's fine. I want you to. Where have we heard the word for, where have we heard 40 before? There's a whole bunch of th- different things said. <laughs> Jamie? Yes? Yeah? Fasting in the desert. Now, so Jesus has already had an experience of 40 days, right? But what did that experience, what was that experience connected to? 40 years in the desert. Yes. So Israel had an experience, they had a wilderness experience for 40 years in the desert, where they had to learn to trust in God, right? Jesus then, one of the first things we see Jesus doing, is he has a wilderness experience for 40 days. He's in the desert, he's in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil to show whether or not he is in fact the true chosen servant, whether he can take the mantle from Israel and do what Israel could never do 
to be a light to the nations, to be God's true chosen servant that trusts in him alone, right? So that 40 days fulfilled those narratives, but what then, what, what's up with these 40 days? What are these 40 days doing? Well, perhaps these 40 days are demonstrating that the task that Jesus took on is now complete. Sort of like saying the first 40 days was about being in the wilderness and and showing that he could be in the wilderness, and now the wilderness has actually been conquered. And just as Israel's wilderness experience led to an entry into the promised land, so too these 40 days of Jesus are now showing the disciples a new gateway into God's promises, a new gateway into the promised land. And the promised land now is no longer a place here on earth, a new society, a perfect kingdom like what the disciples want. No, the promised land is Jesus. He's the gateway now into God's promises. He's the way that we get to God. It's all in him. Through Jesus, we enter God's new creation order into this new reality that's now being formed between heaven and earth because these two things are now colliding. Which is why the story doesn't end with the disciples then following Jesus into heaven as if earth doesn't matter. Right? That's not what happens. Hopping down to verse 11, the ascension story ends with these two men in white who we're assuming are angels and not just strange Greek men in nice white robes. We're, we're assuming angels. They, they say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. He's coming back in the same way that you saw him leave. That's the future. That's the hope that Luke is trying to push on us here. God's going to end up coming back here. This is his desired dwelling place, a new earth, a place where God is finally intersected with humanity, a place where there there is no more crying or tears. It's what we read about in Revelation, a place where there is no more sin or sickness, a place where there there aren't any more random murders or wars or pandemics or or fragile and broken relationships. It's It's a perfect world. That's what the whole scriptures are leading us towards. He's coming back here because that was the whole plan. Creation regained, restored, renewed, given back. That's the ending that the ascension points us to. That's the ending that we long for as Christians. Yes, there there is immediate hope in death, just in case your brain's going there. Upon death, there is immediate hope that we are with Jesus then as well, not that we just wait for him later on. In some mysterious way, we are with Jesus, just as the criminal on the cross was promised that he would be with Jesus. Remember that? The guy who was crucified next to Jesus? Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's a hope we can hold on to in some beautiful and mysterious way. We are united with Jesus in death, upon death, But even as glorious as that is, that's not it. That's not actually the end of it. Because the story actually ends with him raising us up with him. From the dust of the earth, just as he did at the start of creation. 
And that's only going to happen because he's going to be coming back. He's going to be here with us. And he's going to allow us to participate in a resurrection just like he did. This is why the angels emphasize this at the end of this passage. Right at his departure, just as he's left, they're telling the disciples, it's okay, he's coming back. As if, as if he got on a, on a plane ride and the flight attendants are telling the disciples, it's okay, he's going to be on the return flight. We don't know when that flight's going to be, but he's on the return flight. The whole Bible narrative assures us over and over again that this is God's greatest desire. Not that we would go to where he is because we can't do that, but that he would come down to where we are so that we can all dwell together here in the goodness of what creation was supposed to be. That's a beautiful thing that we as Christians get to hope for. That's something to be proclaiming hallelujah towards. See, this event, what we read about, it sets the future in motion. The end is determined. It's not an if or a maybe. It's not maybe Jesus is coming back. It's not we have to act or be a certain moral way for Jesus to come back. He's coming back. That's set. That's the finale. The return flight is booked. And if the ending is secure, then we can be secure within that. We can feel secure within that. Because in no way, again, is this about us proving ourselves or finding some way to get to heaven. It's about him actually finding us here. It's about him actually meeting with us here. That's what we see in Jesus himself. He came here to find us. And nothing can stop us from being reunited with him. Because he's coming back. That's not going to change. Why? Because he now holds all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what the ascension means. That's why Jesus left. So that he could be given all things, so that all things could come under his command. He's finished what he started. He's in charge of what happens next. He's got everything. How then do we live in light of this? What do you think? You don't have to talk now, it's fine. Just think about it. How do we live in light of this, right? If this is one of the most beautiful truths, if not the most beautiful truth of our Christian faith, how is this meant to change how we live? We should always be asking ourselves this question. How does this impact my day-to-day? Even in seasons of grief or hurt or pain, maybe even especially in seasons of grief, how does this impact my day-to-day? Because he left us behind, right? He left us here. But he did that for a reason. He did that for a purpose. Was it to leave us with intelligence and wisdom and knowledge about the future so that we can wow everybody to him? I mean, that would be great, but according to verse 7, it's actually not for us to know the dates and the times. Thanks, Jesus. It's not for us to know. 
We either wouldn't be able to handle that kind of knowledge or we would misuse it. But the way that he says it, it is not for you to know. This kind of knowledge is not for you. It's not for you. It's not that I don't want to tell you. It's actually just not for you. All we need to know is that his leaving for now means that we actually get to receive something better which is kind of hard for us to believe because, of course, we all instinctively think that it would have been way better for Jesus to stay here until you start realizing that trying to see him would be like trying to have coffee with Bono or something because it just wouldn't happen, right? Jesus was limited in time and space when he was here. Now he's limitless. He's limitless, which is so much better. So in his place then, We get to receive, what does he say? Not knowledge, but power. It's a scary word. We get to receive power. Jesus has given us power to carry on the work that he started. How? Well, notice earlier on in verse 2, how instructions from Jesus, giving instructions, come through the Holy Spirit. Okay? Instructions from Jesus come through the Holy Spirit. And the last thing the apostles are then told in verse 8 is that this same Holy Spirit is actually going to be given to them. I'm going to say that again. Jesus himself gives instructions through the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit is now going to be given to his disciples. Talk about a reversal of expectations, right? Because before Jesus goes, while they're sitting around a table and eating food, which always cracks me up, big things always happen over food with Jesus, it's great, but when he's sitting around a table with the disciples, eating food, the disciples ask him, are you now going to restore things? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because that's what we're waiting for, right? What are you going to do, Jesus? But then he flips it around, And says, no, 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 you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Do you remember, if you don't remember, that's totally fine. It's kind of an obscure passage. But if you remember, there's a passage in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings. And Elijah who has taken on Elisha as, a, as a, a student, is about to be whisked away into heaven on a chariot. He's going to die. He's going to get whisked away into heaven. And Elisha knows this. And so he asks Elijah, can I have a double share in your spirit? It's so clear that the spirit of God is with you. Can I, my, my parting wish is, can I have a double share in your spirit? And after Elijah is then taken up, the people look at Elisha and they say, what? The spirit of Elijah is resting on him. There's been a transferring of spirit. And in kind of a really beautiful, neat way, this is what's happening with Jesus and his disciples. In a very similar way, the disciples of Jesus are now receiving a share in his spirit. What Jesus had on earth is what his disciples now get to receive. Are you hearing this? This is crazy. What Jesus had on earth 
is what his disciples now get to receive. And we're actually going to spend the whole summer talking about the Holy Spirit because it's just that important. So starting on Pentecost, we're going to start a series on the Holy Spirit, just to giving you a heads up. But this is, this is what, we often see this happening at, at baptism. We often speak about this at baptism because Christians are promised to receive a share in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. They are promised to receive the Spirit of the living God dwelling within them. And the fact that this Spirit is now here with us, representing Jesus, and Jesus is now in heaven, representing our humanity, means that there's a really beautiful bridge here, right? Humanity is now represented in heaven. Divinity is now represented here on earth. There's a bridge. There's a link. And where... Where is that bridge supposed to be most evident? You ready for this? It's the church. Just going to let that sink in for a second. It's the church. Do you ever think that Jesus made a really big mistake? <laughs> That was just a terrible idea. Like, Jesus, <laughs> you're, you're kidding, right? You're going to leave the keys of the kingdom in our fumbling, selfish, sinful hands? What? Why would you do that? I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful analogy. You know, your body's in heaven, and so you need to have a body here on earth, so we become your body. Like, that's, that's lovely, that's beautiful, but it's still a terrible idea. What, what have you given us to work with? Nothing. You didn't write a best-selling novel. You didn't erect a statue of yourself in a museum. You, nobody knows what you look like, what you sounded like. You didn't build up a dynasty or leave some sort of temple or palace in your name. What are we supposed to go off of? Nobody's going to know anything about you ex except what they see in us. Nobody's going to know anything about Jesus except what they see in us. Why would he do this? Well, think of it this way. For Jesus to leave and then give us the power to carry on his work was like taking a tree and splitting it up into all of its different molecular atomic particles. Walter Wink says it was like taking... A dandelion seed head, you know the, the dandelions that are dead and they have all the seeds on them? And blowing on it so that those seeds just get dispersed. Philip Yancey used the analogy of a prism. It's like, it's like the light coming towards a prism and then shooting out in an array of colors and waves. See, Jesus' ascension means that his plan from the very beginning was to give the task of doing and teaching and healing and restoring what he did the whole time that he was here on earth to us. We are his body here on earth. We are the extension of him here on earth with his spirit 
operating within us. Have you ever thought about that? We are his body and we have his spirit. You can't get more holistic than that. We have Jesus. We are his body. We are identified as his body. We have his spirit. Nothing of this is in and of ourselves. This is how we're meant to live. And so there's just, there's two encouragements that I want to leave us with this morning to help us embrace this a little bit. Now, there's obviously more, but I'll, spirit willing, I'll leave those for you to ponder on your own. But the first is this, and this may sound obvious, but it's going to be said anyway. Being given this power does not mean that we are perfect. In fact, it means the opposite. And again, that might sound obvious, but sometimes I think that based on the ways that we sometimes treat each other and the expectations that we have on one another, I don't think it's as obvious as we think. Remember, the apostles were chosen by Jesus. They didn't choose him. They were chosen by him. They didn't do anything. They didn't prove themselves in any way to receive a share in his spirit. It was completely gift. It wasn't of their own doing. But they were chosen despite their flaws and inadequacies. Why? Because Jesus wants to work through broken, fragile people who can learn how to depend on him. He didn't want, why would he ever go with people who think they're fully self-sufficient in and of themselves? That's not going to do anything. If the whole idea is to have his spirit and his presence working within us, he has to work through broken people. We have to be broken in order for him to use us because it means then that we depend more on him than we do on ourselves. We can't actually do it on our own. We can't, in and of ourselves, actually be witnesses for Jesus. It's not possible. Flannery O'Connor once said this when she was, she, people, she was an author, famous author, and people would write her letters all the time because she was Catholic, and so they would ask her questions about the church, and there was one letter that came in that was just bemoaning the state of the church, and she said this, the church is founded on Peter, who denied Christ three times and who couldn't walk on water by himself. Should we really expect ourselves to be any better? We need to be careful about the expectations that we put on one another. And I, you know, I don't want to minimize this. I, I think all of us know people that have been hurt and disappointed by the church. It, it's, it's such a tragedy to us. We all know people that, friends, family, that have left church that don't even want to associate with Christians anymore. And I'm not talking, I'm talking about the global church, right? I'm talking about multiple churches that leave the capital C church, that, that don't even want to associate with Christians anymore because they didn't feel like they saw Jesus in them. That's tragic, Right? We all want for the church to be the perfect embodiment of Jesus. That's what we all want. We just all think that looks a little different, right? But that's ultimately what we all want. Isn't that just indicative of how badly we need to be asking for power from the Holy Spirit? 
and trusting not so much in ourselves? The church really isn't so different from any other organization or even an extended family. That's probably a better analogy. Right? We fight with each other. We bicker. We argue over petty things. We all think that our own values are more important. Right? Extended families do that all the time. We're no different. But what's different about us, hopefully, is is how we come out of those things. How we restore relationship. How we work to see healing. Of course we're going to be messy. How do we clean up the mess? Who do we depend on within that? Do we try to just band-aid solution everything and quick fix it? Do we just decide to disagree and exist within our conflicts? Or do we wait patiently to receive instruction from the Holy Spirit? What would that even look like? Depending on an external power implies, folks, that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. So we cannot just make decisions or give instruction willy-nilly to one another. Jesus' own instructions came from the Holy Spirit. Which means that we can't actually receive direction from Jesus without it. Which leads me then to my second encouragement for today. Jesus is able to be powerfully at work within us. Remember, because it's not our power, right? It's not our power. It's not like Jesus just gives us a new battery and then walks away, right? The, the power is associated with the person. We can't own that power any more than we can own Jesus himself. And he invites us. Because of this, he invites us to continually coming to him to continually come to him to receive more of him, to be filled again, to be recharged. And the way we do that is by communing with him. The way that we who are still here on earth, because again, he left us here, and so the way that we who are still here on earth can participate with what's happening in heaven and the conversations that are going on there and the plans that Jesus has for restoring this world, the way that we connect with him is through prayer. Have you ever thought of prayer as being that powerful? <laughs> that you actually enter into the divine conversations that are going on? You know, I'll, I'll admit myself, it's, it's difficult to grasp this because no matter how much I pray, I don't ever feel powerful. <laughs> Maybe that's the point. Ironically enough. But I will, I will testify to this, that when I have consistently and routinely spent time in prayer, just communing with Jesus, just spending time with him like I would with any other relationship, things change. Things change. When we pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us, when we pray that we would exemplify the fruits of the Spirit, things change. We become more patient with one another and with ourselves. We actually demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. Do you, all, do you know all of them? We should know those by heart. The only reason I know them is because there was a song that I learned when I was a kid. So if you don't know them, learn the song. <laughs> we should know these. Because these are the fruits of the Spirit alive and at work within us.
When we do spend time in prayer, we are much more mindful and much quicker throughout our days to pause and to ask, what would Jesus hope of me in this situation? Maybe even to ask him directly, Jesus, what do you want for me in this situation? What would you hope for me to say? What do you think? I mean, really, who would have thunk it? That when we pray for him to be near us, that he actually does it. Sometimes I think we have more confidence in a Tim Hortons drive-thru than we do in prayer. Not to say that, not to say that Jesus is like a fast food restaurant, but you know what I mean, right? Like when you ask for something and you get it. Like maybe that's because we believe in prayer, but we forget that our prayers actually matter. That we're helping others in their eternal destinies, that Jesus has actually asked us to participate in what's going on, that the angels rejoice when we pray, that the Spirit moves when we pray, that people's lives are changed when we pray, that the King who is on the throne actually responds when we pray. He might not always respond the way we want him to or right away, but he responds. In other words, all of heaven shakes when we pray. What then, in closing, does the ascension really ask of us? It begs us to recognize that King Jesus is on the throne and he desires that we participate in his reign with him through his Holy Spirit, by depending on his Holy Spirit and communing with him in prayer so that we can participate in this work with him and do the work that he began to do here on earth. So that we can enter into that divine conversation that's going on in heaven and to focus not on where he went, but on the fact that he's coming back here. We don't just live for him then because he died for our sins. That's important. That's incredibly significant. It's not the whole picture. We don't live for him because he died for our sins and he gave us a ticket to heaven. That's kind of part of it, but it's not the whole picture. We live for him because he died and he suffered so that he could create a pathway between heaven and earth, so that he could go to be with the Father and the Spirit could come to be with us, so that one day we could all dwell together in a new heavens and a new earth that are finally one. That's what the ascension means. That's the good news. Death, resurrection, and ascension. As it says in Philippians 2, and let's close with this. Jesus, oh sorry, it's very small, but I want you to see the whole thing. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And look, it doesn't end there. 
It doesn't end there. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is where there's power, right? In this passage. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me ask you, what is the key word in this passage? What's the key word? What's the key moment? We might think it's in the middle there, even death on a cross, and that is significant. That is huge. But I want to argue this morning that the key word is therefore. Therefore. Death means nothing if there is not a therefore to follow it. A significance, a purpose, a follow-through, an implication. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. This is what we proclaim. This is what we witness to. This is our good news. Let's pray. Living God and Father, as Liz prayed earlier this morning, we pray that you would open up our imaginations and inspire us to live in light of your Son's ascension. We pray that we would celebrate in every way that Jesus, that you are our King, and that we would be continued, we would continue to be sanctified and purified by your, your Spirit. Give us grace, Jesus, for the many ways that we fail, and encourage us to continually be asking and pleading for more power, for more wisdom, for more filling, by and through your Holy Spirit, so that we can be your body, your hands and your feet on this earth until you come again. In the power-filled name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.